You know, as I was preparing uh, my talk today, th this week, it, I was reminded of a, a great opening scene in a classic uh, play or movie called Fiddler on the Roof. Some of you have seen that, know of it? Oh, good. So I see some heads going both ways. Okay. But that's, it was a classic movie. If you've never seen it or the play, it's worth seeing. And since it relates to our Bible passage this morning, is it, is it okay if I share just a, a little segment with you this morning? Okay. So here on the video screen. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! Well, yes, great opening scene of that movie, but uh, that song, Tradition. Tradition, it's always been an important part of Jewish life, culture, worship, everything about being Jewish. In fact, we see that on nearly every page in the Old Testament. Tradition, Jewish tradition, tradition that God's people had from the very beginning. In fact, it was the tradition of the Jews that often got Jesus in trouble. He so often didn't go along with the traditions. And so there was, all, there was conflict that the traditions produced, even in the New Testament, between the Jewish community, particularly the Jewish leaders, and Jesus. Tradition. And in case we think it's only a Jewish issue, the traditions, if you've been around the Christian church very long, you know we have our traditions too. In fact, when we first came, I asked some of the leadership, particularly Douglas, I said, if I get close to one of the traditions here at Calvary and I'm about to break it, please tell me. I don't want to create conflict over the traditions of the church. But sometimes that happens, even in the church. And the result of our traditions, whether we recognize them sometimes or not, can be when they're transgressed, it can produce conflict. So much so in some churches that conflict can appear to be one of our traditions. <laughs> we just do that. We just kind of fight together as a family sometimes. Now, I know when it comes to conflict and these tensions, Calvary is quite unusual, abnormal because you have experienced as a church very little conflict in the history of your existence. 
I know that because I took a poll of the deacons this week. It said, tell me about the conflict at Calvary. And without exception, they all rated it on the lower end of the scale. We've not had a lot of conflict here. And so I assure you, in our six months here, we are not intending to change that. We, we want to continue that peace of the family here. And actually, I know that if you are new at Calvary, um, you will discover this to be that kind of place. There's not conflict here. And those of you who, for whom Calvary is your church home, you appreciate that. It's a family. It's, we are in this together. Certainly there are differences of opinions, but we love one another. We move ahead together to accomplish our mission together. And so if you're new at Calvary, I hope you experience that same blessing of lack of conflict, a unity in our church. And not only is such unity a blessing to the congregation itself, we find in the New Testament, it's also a source of joy for the pastor of a unified church. I know that it was true here. Many times when I spoke with Pastor Nathaniel, your, your pastor who has recently departed, and he would say what a joy it was for him and his family to serve here at Calvary. And how hard it was to, for God to lead them somewhere else and to leave this warm fellowship. It brought joy to his life to be here. That is a value of this church. One of its values is to be a joyful church. And we've experienced that in even the few weeks we've been here. And we discover why that is. Why joy and this idea of unity go so much together in the Christian church. We discover that in a little New Testament book that we've been considering over the last several weeks. It's the letter, the book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest leaders in the first century early church. He wrote it from a prison cell in Rome in about A.D. 60. When we've titled this series that we're in, we've titled it Unchained Living. Because that's what Paul was doing while he was there in that prison cell in Rome. He was living life to the fullest, even though he found himself in chains. And he was modeling for this church, his favorite church, the Philippian church. He was modeling for them a life of joy. And so today we pick up where we left off, and we'll be in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. We discover that in addition to Paul's joy that he told us in chapter 1, joy from the, his partnership with the Philippians in the out, outplay of the gospel, Paul also said there's an added element that completes his joy as a pastor, and as an apostle, and as a leader. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to find the book of Philippians. We'll also have some verses up here on the screen if you don't have one. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, just see one of the ushers and we'd be glad to get you a Bible in English today. And we have some, if you don't even have a Bible, we have some that we'll make available to you at the end of the service. Just let us know. So Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is about a little over halfway through your New Testament, if you're not real familiar with your Bible, that's okay. Check the table of contents. But Philippians is a small four-chapter letter that Paul wrote from prison in Rome. And he begins there in chapter 2. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete 
by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So did you catch it? Did you, did you see what Paul's source of complete joy is that he gathers from the Philippian church? He says in verse 2, it's simply the unity of the church. When the church is united and harmonious, that brings joy to Paul's heart, brings joy to the pastor. And Paul says here, there are really four incentives for our unity in the church. Four incentives for us to be together in harmony. He says, as followers of Jesus, the first one is that we're in a vital union with Christ. We're united with the one we follow, Jesus, so that union ought to spill over in our relationships with each other. We can be unified with each other because we're united in Christ. And then he says, number two, it's the comfort of being connected to God's love, that God loves us. And we explore that and we discover that God loves us just as we are. He doesn't love us when we clean up our mess, when we get dressed for Sunday, when we put out the, the image that everything's good. He loves us even in our brokenness, even in our addictions, even in our bad decisions. He loves us just as we are. And maybe you came today for the first time to church in a long time, and you never knew that kind of God, a God who loves you just as you are. Paul says, that is true. And he says, because we get comfort and, and encouragement from the fact that God loves us just as we are. We can be united together because none of us is better than the other. None of us deserves God's love, but we all get it by his grace. And then he says also through our fellowship, our sharing with the Holy Spirit who indwells us and that stimulates our unity because the Holy Spirit is in us, drawing us together, giving us a heart for one another. And he says that results in tenderness and compassion that prompts our, our unity with one another. So those are four incentives for being unified. And Paul says when that is being lived out in the church, those incentives, we will be unified. There'll be peace in the church. And he says when that happens, Paul says my heart will be filled with joy. My joy will be complete. And that's the same unity in the church that Jesus prayed for from the, from the very beginning. Remember in John 17, 11, Jesus' prayer for us, for the disciples, but then for those of us who would follow after the disciples. He said, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. So that they might be unified together. And I'll tell you, as a pastor for more than 40 years, there's nothing better than to be a pastor of a unified, peaceful church. Doesn't get much better than that. So how does a church do that? How did you as Calvary do that, since you had a history of being unified? How does a church that doesn't have unity get unified? Well, do they form a unity committee? It's your job to unify us? Or do we designate one day a year, this will be church oneness day? 
And we celebrate that one, at least one day a year we stop the fighting. How do you get to that place in a church that's not unified? How do you maintain it in a church that is unified? Well, those may not be bad ideas for divided churches, but that's not the advice that Paul gives us as to how to be a unified church. Instead, he says, just simply live out those four resources that God's given you. Live it out, your union with Christ, the comfort and encouragement of, of his love, our fellowship with the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and the tenderness and the compassion that results in our relationships with one another. And he says, when those elements are present and lived out, unity will be the result in the church every time. And the reason for that, Paul underscores for us in verse 4. He says, you'll not only be looking out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, there'll always be unity in the church when people place the welfare of others ahead of their own welfare. When someone else's agenda gets as much consideration as your own. It doesn't matter, when it doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. When that happens, the church will be unified. And those are descriptions in, chapter, in verse 4 of humility, biblical humility. And that's Paul's point, that there will always be harmony in the church when there's humility in the people. It's just an equation that God put into existence. It's an incontrovertible formula for unity. In case we think that unity or that humility, uh, Christian humility is some kind of bad self-image that Christians should have, Paul sets the record straight. He says, now, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Now, you might have to run that through your mind again, particularly if you're not a native English speaker. What does he just, how does that work together? It's a word order thing, okay? That humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less often, thinking of others more often. And when that becomes the habit for the church, he says there'll be plenty of joy in the heart of the pastor. And then, in case the Philippians uh, were questioning that or weren't quite convinced that what Paul's saying is, is right, because they had some conflict in the church. We find that in chapter 2 here. That's why he's writing about it. We'll see it again in chapter 4. There were some broken relationships in this church. But if they're still a little foggy on how to foster church unity or what humility looks like in their relationships with one another, how they live that out, it's like Paul stops for a minute as he's writing. He says, I, I, I need to illustrate this. I need to give them a picture of what humility looks like. So put yourself in prison next to Paul for a moment. And he turns to you and he says, I, I need an illustration of this kind of humility. Can you help me with that? What illustration might you suggest to him? You don't have to shout that out, but think about it for a second. What illustration would you give him of, of incredible humility that produces unity? I bet some of you would come up with the illustration that Paul came up with. 
It's like an aha moment. You know what that is? Where Paul says, ah, that's it. That's the illustration. And he comes up with the mother of all illustrations. Do you know that phrase? <laughs> the mother of all, the grandest, the best illustration you could ever have of humility. We, we see that in verse 5. He says, so in your relationships with one another, in your humility of, of getting along, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let me illustrate humility by telling you about Jesus, Paul says. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we grasp something of the gravity of those words, of that illustration, our lives will never be the same when we think of humility and what that looks like, what it means. As one of my friends, pastor friends, once said, he said, these words about Jesus and his humility have given me nosebleeds for 30 years. He says, because if I want to be a devoted follower of Christ, then I have to express my Christianity the same way Jesus did. That's a challenge, isn't it? That's what Paul's saying here. If you want unity in your church, then think like Jesus thought. Act like Jesus acted. Treat others the same way Jesus treated them. And then, just so we can't make up for ourselves how we think Jesus acted or thought or treated people, Paul lays it out for us. Gives us some details in these verses that are both overwhelming and unfathomable. We, we just can't get our minds around it hardly. And these verses are the most profound and glorious words in the Bible about Christmas, about the Christmas event, what theologians call the incarnation, when Jesus came to earth and God became a man. That's what Christmas is all about. And Bible scholars believe that these words that Paul used to illustrate the humility, this concept of humility, that those words were likely sung by the first century church. They were a little hymn or chorus. It was called, it's often called, referred to as the, the Philippian hymn. And that's why maybe in your Bible you see those words in a poetic style because they were probably sung by the church. And Paul picks them up and says, those are great words, those are truths about who Jesus is. It might be similar to if you know the old hymn called the Old Rugged Cross. Do you know that in the Portuguese in the version of that? The Brazilian church sing that? Well, that's a hymn about Christ's atonement. This was a hymn about Christ's incarnation, him becoming to earth, coming to earth. And Paul uses this great theological truth of the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, as a model of the humility that produces unity in the church. And the greatness of this hymn is that it traces something we wouldn't expect. It traces what has been called the downward mobility of Jesus. 
I'll explain that as we move on here in just a moment. But the downward mobility of Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you wonder who he is, these are great words. Maybe you wonder, well, what's Jesus? Maybe I don't follow Jesus because I, I just don't want to keep a, a long list of rules. I don't, I don't need that in my life. Or I don't need a Jesus who's always mad at me, always disappointed in me, always has too high of expectations of me. I don't know who your Jesus is. And maybe you're not following the right Jesus, or maybe you've rejected the wrong Jesus because you don't really know who the real Jesus is. Or maybe even as followers of Jesus, sometimes we get confused as to who the real Jesus is. And so we take the Jesus that maybe a friend tells us about or has been passed down from our parents or our grandparents or somebody else, and it's not the real Jesus. Paul says, listen, let me tell you who the real Jesus is. And then you can decide whether to follow him or reject him, but at least you'll be following or rejecting the right Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And so Paul begins his description of this downward mobility of Jesus. In verse 6, he said there, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. This is one of the clearest statements in the whole New Testament that teaches the deity of Jesus. In other words, that Jesus is equal to God. He's equal to God the Father. He's the second person of a three-person trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, as the Son, he says, is in very nature God. He's equal to God the Father. Co-eternal, co-powerful, co-glorious. He's equal to God in every way. And so this is the high point from which his downward mobility begins. Very nature God. And that downward journey is now described in the next phrase. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held onto, or to be used to his own advantage. What Paul is saying is that Jesus had all the rights, all the privileges, all the glory in heaven of being God because he is God. And he had everything that heaven has to offer. But he did not hold on to it selfishly. So that that high standing and that glorious experience he wouldn't set aside. But in humility, he took a downward step. In, in humility, verse 7 says, but he made himself nothing. Some translated, he emptied himself in humility of all that glory. He chose to make of himself nothing in comparison to his heavenly glory. And so he became one of us, became a man. He became a resident of a, in a broken, sinful earth and world. Jesus humbly and willingly chose to exchange his heavenly palace for an earthly outpost. As one Bible translation puts it, the message which I appreciate, it says, he moved into our neighborhood. Isn't that a profound image? Jesus left his heavenly glory and he moved onto your street, my street, moved into our neighborhood. And now notice that Paul doesn't say when he did that, 
that Jesus ceased to be God or he gave up his deity. Rather, he simply chose to lay aside his heavenly glory and his divine privileges as being God. This is what theologians, if you like theology, you, you like, theologians refer to this as the kenosis passage. From that Greek, the Greek word of, that he emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself of his divine heavenly glory as the son of God. Not his divine nature, but his divine glory. And he took on the form, the nature of a human servant, a slave, a bond slave. And that's why Jesus himself could say in the Gospel of Luke 22, 27, I am among you as one who serves. And Matthew, who wrote his Gospel, could say the Son of Man did not come to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's like Jesus decided if he's going to save the homeless, he better move in with them under the bridge and live where they live, and become one of the homeless. And in so doing, his humility would eventually lead him to the cross, where he would die, pay a sacrifice for a penalty that we owed, but we couldn't pay, and Jesus paid it for us. As the Bible concludes in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Paul says that's the ultimate illustration of humility. The son of God, God himself, God leaving heaven in the person of Jesus, coming to earth, giving his life here and dying for us so that we might come to know God, that we might be reunited with God in an eternal, last, everlasting relationship with him. So Paul's saying, if you want to see what humility looks like that produces harmony in the church, consider the example of Jesus, because that's humility in its purest form. Humility that recognizes it has rights and privileges, but then willingly chooses to set them aside in deference to other people. A humility that says, I don't have to defer to you, but I choose to. I don't have to stay behind and serve you, but I choose to. I don't have to take out the trash and clean up your messes, but I choose to. I don't have to make you a meal or watch your kids or sit with you in the hospital, but I choose to. And then humility says, and I won't just do that once a year, I'll do that as a way of life whenever I have the opportunity. I will choose to think of myself less and think of you more. That's humility. And then when that happens in the church, God takes notice. He doesn't miss a thing, just as he did with Jesus. And we see that in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, therefore because of his humility... God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
Those verses are powerful verses of the exaltation of Jesus. Verses 6 through 8 talked about the, the humiliation of Jesus in his humility. And then these verses tell us, but God exalted him because of his humility. And Paul says that God restored Jesus to his place of honor. He brought him back to his heavenly glory and all of his privileges as the eternal son of God. And he restored his name. He gave him a name that's above every name. He gave him the name Lord. Lord is a title of honor and sovereign power of the universe. The Lord of glory. The Father restored that to Jesus. And finally, God restored his victory. And someday that all people everywhere will acknowledge that Jesus is king. He's the Lord of glory. Now that's yet future, but it's as certain to happen as Jesus' first coming happened. And so, because of that, the choice is ours. Your choice and my choice. We can choose in this life to acknowledge that and to call him Lord. And to bow before him and to say, Jesus, I want to be a follower of yours. I need what you came to earth to bring. I need forgiveness of my brokenness, healing of my sin life. I need freedom from what holds me back. Will you come into my life and take my life from this day forward and make it all that you want it to be? Many of us have chosen to do that, to bow before him and to call him Lord. Others, though, have said, no, I'll wait. I'm not ready. I don't believe it. I'll do life my way. And that's our choice. God's given us that choice. But at least we are choosing whether to follow the real Jesus or reject him. But someday, even those who reject him, Paul tells us here, they will join in this crowd of people who, though they will spend all eternity separated from God, someday, they, even that crowd will acknowledge him as Lord, as victor from a distance. Jesus wins in the end. It's settled. And we can choose to follow him and be a part of that victory here in this life and in the life to come. Or we can decide, no, no thanks. I'll do life my way and try to make something out of the mess of my and brokenness of my own world. For all of us who are followers of Jesus, the truth of his humiliation and his exaltation is to give us an example of what true humility looks like, how we live it out with one another, in our lives, in our relationships, at home, in our church, in the world, in our neighborhood, at work. And the point of all that is simply, Paul wants to remind us of this one truth, that there will be harmony in the church when there is humility in the people. We're going to move from that great reminder of who is our Savior. We're going to take communion in just a few moments. But what a beautiful way to set the stage for us to recognize that as we take communion this morning, we take the, the bread and the cup, we do so remembering that's the one who gave his life for us. The God of heaven became one of us so that he could bring us into a relationship with the God of heaven. Let's pray, and then we'll all lead us into the communion time. God, thank you for your great love, your great care for us. 
Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus. God, thank you that in humility, he took that step, that downward mobility, and showed us what humility looks like so that we could follow that. We can incorporate that into our lives and our relationships so that we can experience the joy of unity in our church, in our relationships at home, in our relationships with one another. We give you thanks, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.